0: And all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning once again, and happy Easter. We just want to welcome everyone to our online worship gathering here on Easter Sunday. Maybe you were invited to log on today by a friend who's a regular attender at College Park. Or maybe you stumbled upon our broadcast while surfing Facebook or YouTube. Either way, we're so glad you're here today joining us in this Easter Sunday morning celebration. We are actually about halfway through a message series we've been on for the last several weeks called Gospel People. And we wanna assure you that even if you haven't heard any of the other messages, today is a message you can listen to, it's standalone. You don't have to have heard all the other previous messages. But here's a little catch up for those who are new to the series and perhaps a reminder for those who have been along for the ride so far. You see, in this series, Gospel People, we're exploring what God has called us to be as his people. It's less focused on our beliefs and behaviors and more on our identity, our character as individuals, but also as his church, the community of Jesus. Today, though, will be a little different because we're gonna be focusing on one very specific belief that's at the core, at the center of our faith. But it still very much speaks to our identity and character as a people. In this series so far, we've discovered that gospel people are a people of greater dreams who expect to see God's power at work. We're a people of abundant life who experience a fullness of life, not just for the future in heaven, but even now. We're a people of passion who don't just settle for a life of obedience, but for a life of love and fullness with Jesus. And we're a people united and have belonging in God's family. So we're loyal and committed to each other and we know that we need each other. And we're a people of incredible generosity who recognize that everything we have is because God first gave it to us. So we look to bless others. And we're a welcoming people who invite one another into true spiritual friendships. We rejoice with each other in good times. We mourn with each other in the hard times, and we bear one another's burdens. And today, on Easter Sunday, it's only fitting that we focus on the fact that gospel people are a people of grace. Gospel people are a people of grace. And to do that, we're going to center our attention on Paul's letter to the ancient church in Ephesus. We're going to look at the book of Ephesians. And we have looked at Ephesians and some other messages a few weeks ago. But now we're going to go back and see what the Lord has to say through the writer, Paul, in chapter 2 about the nature of grace and faith and salvation. So here's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And I'm reading out of the New International Version. Paul says as for you you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air now that's the devil and we'll we'll get to that but he's the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient all of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like all the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I love this passage. It's so thick and there's so much going on here. It's densely packed with grammatical main clauses and dependent clauses and lots of Prepositions and do you know in the original Greek verses one through seven is actually a 124 word, 124 word run on sentence. So it's helpful to take it in smaller sections to get down to what Paul is communicating about sin and grace and faith and good works. And it's a great passage for Easter Sunday because it tells us the truth about salvation and our belonging in Jesus. Now, it's certainly full of the good news that we celebrate today. But Paul works his way first through some bad news, some hard words first. So that's where we have to start. And with these words, uh, it's the first of three sections within these 10 verses. We can really break these 10 verses down into three sections. And I'm gonna go ahead and tell you what those three sections are. The message here is that we are dead on our own, but we are alive in Christ, and we are alive for His glory. So we're dead on our own, we are alive in Christ, and we are alive for His glory. So first of all, we're dead on our own. So the first thing Paul says, he says, "'As for you, you were dead.'" You know, so this is kind of a gut punch, right? Because if you're reading chapter one, where Paul's talking about our blessings in Christ, our belonging in him, the promises and glory of God, the hope and power and assurance we have in Jesus, and then the majesty and the authority of Jesus, then we turn the page and Paul says, "'As for you, you were dead.'" Oof, right? Paul, he starts with some words about sin, Because to understand what it means to be saved, we have to understand what it is that we're saved from. And so verses one, two, and three focus on our fallenness, our hopeless condition as a result of our sin. And that's the problem, that apart from Christ, before recognizing our need for Jesus, we're dead. Paul, he contrasts Jesus' position with ours. He is alive because of his righteousness, but we're dead because of our sins. Jesus is exalted, seated in the heavens, but we are here on the dirt and the mess of the earth. Christ has been given power and authority over all powers and authorities, but we are subject to those powers and authorities. And part of the problem is that we often don't we usually don't even realize the extent of our condition until after we're saved. We don't realize how deep it goes. Before recognizing our need for Jesus, we're blinded and we're deceived by Satan. See, we think we're living a really good life when we're actually dead. We think that by living in sin, by indulging in everything available to us, that we're actually enjoying life to its fullest, but we're not. We think we're free, but we're really enslaved. And Paul sums up our condition in that one word, dead. To be dead is to be lifeless. To be dead is to be unable to help oneself. To be dead is to be absolutely powerless and beyond hope. And you know, death is ultimately the result of sin. The result of sin. And in our text, Paul examines the human identity apart from Christ. And to say that we are dead in sin means that we're controlled by it and that we deserve its consequences. And he points to this in three ways in the passage. First, we're controlled by sin because we're born that way. At the end of verse 3, he says, we were by nature children of wrath. You see, we were sinners under God's wrath because it's just in our nature. We're born with it. This is what we call the doctrine of original sin where sin started, and that it's passed on from one generation to the next. You know, we, we all want to look at our children and believe that they're innocent. Well, they may not be accountable yet, but they're not innocent. They have inherited the sin nature just as the rest of us have. The scriptures show us that we are born into sin, having inherited that. Psalm 51, verse five says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And Romans five, verse 12 says, sin entered the world through one man, through Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So, first of all, we're born that way. We are, by nature, children of wrath. And second, before we come to Christ, we're controlled by sin because we're under the influence of Satan, the enemy of God and righteousness. Now, maybe not intentionally, maybe not willingly, But apart from Christ, we are under the influence and control of the enemy of God. In verse 2, Paul says, We used to live following the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So why, why does Paul say the ruler of the kingdom of the air here? You know, it was common at that time to think of the space between earth And the heavens as being inhabited and ruled by antagonistic forces, exercising control over the world below. So really, it's just another way to refer to the devil. And Paul says we used to follow him and that he's the one at work in those who are disobedient, those who are apart from Christ. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So third, we deserve the consequences of sin additionally because, well, we continue to sin. The beginning of verse 3 says, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. You know, sin loves company others to share in the enticement and the excitement of sin. And the natural drift of humanity is to follow the world in its course of sin and rebellion. So it's one thing that we've inherited the sin nature, but we compound that more and more with our daily sin and adding to our guilt and to our debt. So Paul First, reminds us that we are dead on our own. He defines our condition, the original sin nature that we inherited, the compounding sin we add on every day, and our enslavement to the enemy of God. In and of ourselves and apart from God, we are desperately and hopelessly lost. We're not just sick, we're dead. We're without life, without hope, without potential, without worth, and so much so that any value or any hope must come from outside of us. And so it does come in Christ. And this is the good news of the gospel that what Paul, and this is what Paul explains in verses four, five, and six, right? So as we move on, his message is that we are now alive in Christ. We were dead on our own, but now we're alive in Christ. And this is verses 4, 5, and 6, where he says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You know, I love the first word of this section, but. The first three verses you know, they focus on our hopeless, fallen condition because of our sin. There seems to be no solution. There appears to be no, only, only one possible fate for humanity. And there's no cure because we're not just sick, we're dead. But because of his great love for us, right? It's, it's like the lighthouse on the shore on a dark and stormy night. The sigh of relief that there, that there just might be a way, a solution, something, someone who can bring the dead back to life our condition isn't hopeless after all because god has come to the rescue through the life death and victory of jesus christ and paul he mentions three things here that we talk about in the church all the time god's love god's mercy and god's grace god's love mercy and grace you know, it's so easy to pray using these words, to sing using these words, even to preach using these words, but in our hearts and minds, we, we quickly move past the power and the depth of meaning of God's love and mercy and grace. See, his love, you see, is, is very different than our love for him. Our love for God is a response to God. It's a response to his love. 1 John four nineteen says that we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. So our love for God is a response to God's love for us. But God's love for us is, is more than a response. In fact, it's a cause. God's love is a cause. It's not a response. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says in verse 6, he says at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And in verse 8, he says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God's love for us isn't in response to anything we do or earn, we create, dream of, accomplish, or give. God's love is simply because he is who he is. It is his nature. God's pursuit of humanity and Jesus' death on the cross to get us there had nothing to do with how lovable we are but with how incredibly loving God is. And what of God's mercy and grace? What do these words mean? Well, do you remember the end of verse three? Paul says, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Wrath is, it's, it's what we had coming. It's what we deserved. It's what we had earned. But look at verse four and five, where he says, but because of his great love for us, that's God's motive, he's motivated by love. God, who is also rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. We deserved wrath, but we didn't get it. We earned death, but that's not how we were paid. You see, mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve when you don't get what you do deserve. And what each of us deserves is to be left dead and alone in our sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, instead of leaving us dead, made us alive with Christ. And again, his mercy isn't in response to some kind of potential we might possess or qualities of character we have. God's mercy is prompted by our own pathetic condition. So the goodness, the the kindness, and the compassion is in the giver, not in the receiver. So if mercy is not getting what we do deserve, then grace is getting what we don't deserve. It's divine favor, which is undeserved. But even more so, grace is getting something we don't deserve and couldn't possibly go get on our own. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And that's what we're celebrating today. The grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. His work on the cross and his resurrection that defeated death. Grace isn't something won or earned or bought by us. Grace is given freely by our God who is patient and kind and rich in mercy. It's a gift. And you know, when you're given a gift by someone, it's not because you did anything to deserve it, it's because they love you. And God's grace, divine grace, was not given to us because we were so worthy or because God found anything good in us. Remember, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But instead, it's the goodness of God himself and we receive it in faith you now suppose you were walking downtown one day and you passed by a beauty salon and as you passed one of the other one of the stylists from the beauty salon was standing by the door and through the crowd she pointed to you she called you out she called you over and she offered you a full makeover for free she picked you out among all the crowd well let me ask should you feel flattered Should you feel special? Should you take pride in your beauty? Probably not because she picked you out because you need a makeover. No, no salon is going to advertise its work by selecting an already beautiful person and then making only slight improvements. They're going to, they're going to take someone who needs some real help and then take credit for the transformation. Well, so it is with God's grace. God sent Jesus Christ to the world to suffer and to die in the sinner's place. He did this because we're in such terrible shape. And he did this so that he could demonstrate his grace and his power in transforming a dead man or a dead woman into a new creation. A living testimony, an advertisement of his grace and power. And it's through our union with Him that we are transformed from what we were to what He is. Though we were dead because of our sin, in Christ we were made alive. Though we were enslaved by our own sin nature, by the world, and by Satan, in Jesus we're seated in the heavenly places, now free from the powers that oppose God, and instead we're bonded to Him, who by love delivered us from our bondage to sin and death. So God's motivation in saving us it shouldn't flatter us it shouldn't make us think we're special for some reason other than the fact that we are his child and he loves us and this gives us joy and it does glorify him and that's what he saves us for if verses one two and three focus on our fallenness and hopeless condition as a result of our sin And verses 4, 5, and 6 focus on God's love and his mercy and his grace to provide salvation in Christ. Then verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 focus on the purpose of salvation. The purpose of salvation. And all together they spell out the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were dead on our own, but we are alive in Christ and we are alive for his glory. You know, it's unfortunate. Many of us have Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 memorized. That's great. That's not unfortunate. But what is unfortunate is that we often don't include verse 7 in that. Because verse 7, it gives us the platform for understanding and applying verses 8, 9, and 10. But I'm going st- to back up even one more verse to verse 6 and so we can move into it. So here's verse 6 and 7 and God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why? In order or so that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So all this was accomplished by God in Christ with a result in mind, to demonstrate for the rest of time, the incomparable riches of his grace. This was meant to draw attention to the glory of God for the rest of history and beyond. In the giving of his own son over to death, God showcased his favor toward humankind in a way that would cover all the centuries between Jesus' ascension to heaven and his return someday. And so when we read verses 8 and 9, and then we read verse 10, both of those start with the word for they start with the word for, and so those statements are meant to prove or support the statement in verse seven, and so verses eight and nine says, "For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves; it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast." If the, so, if the sacrifice and death and victory of Jesus is meant to show the incomparable riches of His grace, then any notion of human effort or contribution has to be removed. It's all God. It's all his work. It's all his effort. It's all his grace given freely to us. If there's any human contribution to salvation, then it's no longer about the incomparable riches of his grace. It's about our effort. Okay, And then in verse 10, Verse 10 takes it a step further. Paul says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If verses 8 and 9 are about the cause of our salvation, then verse 10 is about the effect of our salvation. God will be glorified for all eternity for his grace toward men because any good deed that comes from our salvation is also the result of God's grace. We are his handiwork. We are what we are because of his doing. We are a new creation in Christ, but we are his creation. We don't take credit for anything good that we might do that comes from our salvation. God works, good works will not save us. And neither will they be the cause for our boasting, for our bragging, except as we boast in the Lord. Now, let's not get confused. Paul says, you are saved by grace through faith and not by works. And then he says right away, you are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Well, simply put, we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We aren't saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. And so the great truth that we celebrate this Easter Sunday, and really every time we gather to call attention to God's glory, is that we were dead on our own, but we are alive in Christ, and we are alive for His glory. You know, in Ephesians 2, we have the difference between what we once were apart from Christ and what we are now in Christ. The good news of the gospel is that we don't have to remain spiritually dead in our sin and separated from God and destined for his wrath. God has provided a way of salvation, one way, by which sinners can become saints. And this way is Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. See, Christ died for our sins so that we don't have to suffer the penalty of death. On this Easter Sunday, we celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And if we are in Christ, we too are promised and can be sure of our resurrection from the dead and our position with God in the heavenlies. And to be in Christ, there are really only two things required. And we find them both here in Ephesians 2. The first is essentially to agree with God when it comes to our sin, when it comes to our condition, that we give in to our sin, that we are dead into, dead in our sin, that we follow the ways of the world and that we're under the oppression and influence of God's enemy, the devil. We call this part confession, recognizing and admitting our sin and our hopeless condition apart from Jesus, but Part, part of it going right along with confession is we ask God to help us renounce our sin and to run away from it. And this we call repentance. So that's the first part, confession and repentance. It comes together. And the second part is to personally receive Jesus as God's provision for your salvation. Believe Jesus really is who he claimed to be. Believe Jesus really did take on the punishment of all sin. Believe Jesus really did rise from the dead. And believe in faith and with confidence that you also receive this gift of salvation. Paul says in Romans chapter 10 verse 9, he says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, there's the confession, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there's the faith then you will be saved. And when we come to Jesus in faith and confession, we cease to be what we once were. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we continually become more like Jesus. That's an enabling that he gives us. If you already follow Jesus, then Ephesians chapter two should remind you of what you once were and who you now are in Christ. It should fill you with gratitude and humility It should motivate you to live as God has called us, as his handiwork, created in Jesus to do good works as a response to his love and mercy and grace. Ephesians 2 is full of truth in which we can rejoice. But if you can't rejoice in these truths, then now, today, is an opportunity for you to receive them for yourself. Look, the scriptures make it clear that you are no worse and no better than any other person than any other sinner and apart from Jesus the truth is you are spiritually dead in your sins without life or hope but in Jesus you will have the blessing and the promise of eternal life and in growing measures you will be less subject to the pressures of the world to Satan's power your own sinful desires and even your own sin nature And God, renews your mind, your heart, and your soul, making you a new creation. And you will come to experience the incomparable riches of his grace and his kindness for yourself. I pray today will be the day of your salvation, that you can join the gospel people, the people of grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your presence with us this day on this Easter Sunday, where we celebrate the great miracle, the great power of the resurrection. What a great day it is to rejoice and to be glad, to know that we belong to you, that we are your children, we are the citizens of your kingdom, and that you will never fail us, abandon us, you will never walk away, Lord. Even when we run away in our sin, even when we turn from you, there you are, not just waiting, but even pursuing us. And we know you're pursuing us even today, on this Easter Sunday. And I pray for those who are listening today and they have questions. They're they're wondering about life and faith. They're wondering about who you are and who you can be in their lives and who they can be in you. As they ask questions and face the truth about themselves, Lord, I pray for their hearts, Lord, that you would give them answers, that you would show your compassion and open their minds and hearts to the truth of their need for you. And if you are someone today who is seeking, if you're ready to receive Jesus Christ into your life, to trust him, then all you have to do is come to him and confess, Lord, I, I realize my need for you. I recognize my need for you. I recognize that apart from you, I'm lost in my sin and that, that I'm, I'm subject to the penalty of sin. So I come to you and I repent of my sin. I want to live a life turning away from that and turning towards you to live for you. And so, Lord, I ask you, I I come to you in faith today asking you to be my Savior too and to become my Lord as I grow in you. And if you prayed that prayer today, this is just the first step of how much God wants to work in your life and to bless you and bring you into the abundance of life that he has to offer. Seek someone out in the church. I want to encourage you to, to seek someone out at College Park or maybe somebody invited you to view this this uh, broadcast today. Have those conversations. Feel free, please look me up on the staff page and send me an email. And Lord, I just wanna close this time asking you to, to show your favor to all your people. We keep praying for our nation. We keep praying for our governments, for our healthcare workers as they lead us through this crisis in this day and age. May we see your hand at work in them and in the church, and by the power of your spirit. And Lord, once again, we praise you and we thank you on this resurrection Sunday in which we've all gathered to worship together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.